BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we just watch? We just watched Anatomy of a Murder, a 1959 courtroom drama starring Jimmy Stewart. And it's actually based on the novel of the same name, uh, which was written by a former justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Under the pen name Robert Traver. Real name John D. Volker. And it's actually based pretty closely on a case that he himself was involved in just a few years earlier. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. I I love this movie. I really liked it. Do you want to have some general comments about what you liked about it, or you want to just dive in? I'll I'll dive in and unroll what I liked as we talk about it. But um, I I found this very gripping. And a courtroom drama is a place where a lot of cliches can potentially, you know, pop up. 
you know, and and this felt like it maintained the suspense and the drama and the and the tension without relying on crude cliches and and without you know being stupid <laughs> and and also unlike uh a, a perhaps a cliched or a typical courtroom drama i would say there was no heroes there were no heroes i love that in this case the protagonist is jimmy stewart who's the lead defense attorney but um the prosecutors are not bad men they're doing their jobs you can understand what where they're coming from um and we'll get to everybody yeah. makes decisions on both sides that are a little bit dubious oh yeah there's many dubious decisions on both the prosecutor and the defense teams and at the end not to give any spoilers at this point but i think it's fair to say that at the end of the story we're not entirely sure if the right verdict was reached yes 100 percent. and i'll be i'll be curious I'll be curious what you think, which I, 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 I go back and forth on this, but there's a lot of elements about the concept of like slut shaming, slut mm. shaming one of these central characters, this, this woman who is uh, saying she's a rape victim. And I will be curious. I don't I I'm curious about like what the movie's like saying about that or like how, how it how I feel about it today. I don't mm -hmm. know. I'm like working through it because like on one hand, I'm kind of like, OK. I think it's kind of it, it, it's just it's interesting it's nuanced you want to talk about that now or when we get to it let's get let's get to it uh and before we get to it i'd like to say one more general comment which is because it was based pretty closely on a real case it was filmed in the areas where that case actually happened and jimmy stewart's uh office is actually the office of this lawyer who wrote the book. And so that generally gave the movie a very real sense of time and place that a lot of films lack. It like, it feels crisp. I think you said it almost felt documentarian. Like we're at a real place where real people are. And it like, they could have easily done this movie in LA or wherever, you know, and, and, and it would have been fine, but it really adds something when it's, when it feels like, okay, we're in Michigan, we're in a different place. We're kind of learning about that place. If you're not from Michigan, you know, the upper peninsula, it, it, it just felt very fresh and like authentic. I really liked it. I really liked the Michigan set setting. Cause I kept on being like, wait, there's no way they did this in LA. <laughs> and then we looked it up and they, they filmed on, uh, on location at Michigan. Pretty cool. So do you want to, this is a long movie, so I don't know if we're going to go into the every scene like we sometimes do yeah let's let's maybe do the highlights um and and sort of what we noticed about okay do you want to dive right in with the opening credits yeah opening credits we already have kind of a cool jazzy vibe um your bit is basically kind of like a like an abstract drawing of like a body and like you're seeing all the different pieces of it this is an anatomy of a murder so it kind of makes sense that you're seeing you know the, the corpse here um and uh, pretty cool. Pretty early on, you realize that this film is scored by Duke Ellington. That's pretty neat. And it's a very kind of jazzy opening, very exciting. I really liked what... It's very evocative. It's very evocative. And it's, I, I, I don't know, it really worked for me, the music in this. It, it was just different. It was a little bit different, you know? Like, you're so used to some of these courtroom dramas, like a like, big string orchestra, like, dun, dun, Lily. And like, this was like, just doing something... The movie just very much feels like its own thing, and I really like that. 
And it, it, it also later we learn it sort of evokes Jimmy Stewart's character sensibilities because he likes a lot of different music and jazz and he likes to play the piano. So kind of kind of uh, works with with a character later on. And as the movie starts, Jimmy Stewart is coming back into town after a fishing trip. Uh, he passes uh, a bar, I believe, where his uh, alcoholic friend, Mr. McCarthy, is drinking. And Mr. McCarthy's having trouble paying his bar bill. Uh, and then we see Stewart going back into his office and he's cleaning his fish and such and we just get just the, doing jimmy things <laughs> just doing jimmy things just doing jimmy uh and we, and we learned through dialogue and stuff later that he used to be the prosecuting attorney in this town and he lost and so he's been kind of adrift since then yeah he hasn't been very successful with his law firm because he it doesn't seem like he's putting a lot of effort into it he keeps going fishing he's like buying a boat he's not He's not like a big successful defense attorney who's using his experience as a prosecutor to really do a lot with his life now. And then this person we saw in the bar, McCarthy, comes to Stewart's uh, office and is basically saying, you should be doing more. This is the person who's basically drinking his own life away. Yeah, kind of ironic. I, I was, did that guy almost, I, I was confused about this, but I really liked their relationship. It, it, that guy almost felt like he used to be Jimmy Stewart's mentor. It kind of felt like that. Yeah. Like it, it didn't feel like a, a peer relationship. It felt more like I was your mentor, but I also fucked up my life. So now, like, no, you're ahead of me in some ways, but I'm also still kind of have this avuncular vibe situation going. And he tells Stuart a little bit uh, about a case where a man has killed the person, a man named Lieutenant Mannion, has murdered Barney Quill. Because Barney Quill has allegedly raped Mannion's wife. And Stuart gets a call from Mrs. Mannion asking him to represent her husband in the trial. And McCarthy is urging Stuart to take this case. Yes, he wants him to get back on track. Also, they for, for an evening activity, they seem to be just sitting around drinking and reading law. Is that something that lawyers actually do, Kevin? <laughs> sure. Ke since, you, since you are a lawyer, I assume you know all these lawyerly cultural things. Well, I don't drink. You don't drink, but would you just sit around reading law? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what a well, nerd. you have to understand uh, the law in case books is kind of like uh, Aesop's fables, uh -huh. where in Aesop's fables, you, you read some crazy story about a bear and a fly doing some crazy shit, mm -hmm. and then at the end they say, well, here's the moral. And so in case books, you have crazy cases and crazy fact situations, and at the end, there would be, well, here's what the law, here's what law points you can derive from this. And right. so sometimes it can be funny just to sit around and read some of these crazy cases. Like there's a case where I remember a person is a joke, goes to a subway platform and he sets off like a little tiny firecracker. It's kind of a joke on a friend and the friend jumps and he bumps into somebody who also then startles someone else. And there's this crazy slapstick like pattern, which ends on the other side of the subway station where someone gets seriously injured. Jeez. And it's like, who is responsible for that? The firecracker guy. No shit. No shit. He's responsible for the entire chain. Yes. But it's kind of an interesting little fact situation. Yeah. 
That's interesting. So it's kind of like, it can be kind of fun. So this isn't too unrealistic. Yeah. And it also kind of shows that you feel like he does some sketchy things in this, but you do feel like Jimmy Stewart does care about the law. And almost you feel like he's warming up to being a defense attorney. Like he almost seems personality wise, like he would have been better suited to be the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So, but be, coming from the experience of having been a prosecutor, he knows all the tricks. Yes. So it's interesting. I like that about his character. So then he goes and he meets with this uh, Lieutenant Mannion. And right off the bat, there is this subtle scene. Uh, he says, you know, Lieutenant Mannion, in a murder case, uh, there's basically four possible defenses. One defense is it wasn't even murder. It was suicide. And, and he says, you know, you know, in this case, we know that doesn't apply. The second one would be, uh, I didn't even do it. And we know in this case, it's pretty obvious you did do it. Uh, the third one is it was legally justified, mm -hmm. like it was self-defense. And in this case, we certainly know it wasn't self-defense because you went and you saw this person out. So we can't use that defense. Uh, he says, well, in the fourth possible defense is uh, temporary insanity. And then he says, kind of silent and waiting for the waiting for Mannion to pick up on the cue that this is what he has to say he did. Because Stewart isn't supposed to tell his client to plead a particular defense, but he's certainly taking him by the hand and leading him up to that defense. So as a layperson, what did you think of that? Did you think that sort of thing is ethical? Is it <laughs> I was just thinking if I were in that situation, I would want to be represented by Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, is it... I don't know. I think in this case, maybe the closest someone could, the closest thing, the closest most people could come to a, like an insanity defense is maybe when somebody else severely hurts someone they love. And that, that even, I think, I, I think it seems like there's, there's a lot of wiggle room in the justice system in terms of how insanity is interpreted. I, one thing I was thinking of in this case, it struck me as potentially a reasonable defense. If your if your spouse is is raped and battered by somebody, and then you go kill them, I think a lot of people can understand that line of thinking or action. You know what I mean? Or even how you might kind of go through that robotically. I guess what I'm asking is, uh, I think a lot of lay people have the the idea that in that case, Jimmy Stewart, when he's interviewing his client would say, well, tell me what happened. And yeah. then after he, he, you learn what happened, Stuart would say, well, here's a defense we can use. Yeah. And it's like Stuart makes a point of not asking what happened yes. before he says. Because he can't. Because he, he wants to know, he wants the man to know that if you want to have a defense, you have to tell me what happened in such a way as to make it appear. Yeah, yeah. And, and he also knows that he can't put the man on the stand and have him knowingly lie. So if he tells him something that's inconsistent with the insanity defense, then that means he can't put him up on the stand. So he's basically really coaching him here. I know he's coaching him. I mean, it's, Does that bother you? Not really, honestly. I guess I just kind of figured that that's, that's how it's done. Um, it probably would have bothered me a lot if it was a case where I didn't understand where the, where the perpetrator was coming from as much. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like if it had been a case of like, 
he was defending like a child molester, I would have been like, oh, that's evil. You know what I mean? So I think it's maybe me having a case by case morality here, which is not necessarily a good thing. But no, it did. In this case, it didn't really bother me that much. So make of that what you will. If, if someone hurt me, would you feel uh, a temporary burst of insanity to go get them? Maybe. Yes. <laughs> I'd be uh, Anya would be going and getting her gun. <laughs> Anya, get her gun. <laughs> Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. Yeah. I <laughs> I mean, I think I think most people can understand that it's wrong always to kill. But also that if somebody did that to your spouse or your loved one or whatever, maybe that would be understandable, if not the thing that you should do. So you had some sympathy for the man in this case. Yes, but I was also open to the possibility that he or the wife were lying about what happened and that it was something else was going on. So I wasn't inherently like, oh, you're justified in doing whatever you want. I It was more of like, if that is what happened, I understand that. Maybe this is a good place to talk about the wife a little bit. She's portrayed as dressing very provocatively. She's very flirtatious. She's very out there with her sexuality, and there's some intimations that maybe she was flirting with this man who she said raped her. Maybe she got rides in his car. And so it's not even entirely clear if it was actually rape. Yeah, we don't know if, because it comes out that the husband, the Mannion, is is kind of a jealous guy. So it's a possibility that he reacted jealously to something and threatened her, and then she you know, lied about what happened in order to cover it up. So it's not clear from the outset what exactly happened. And Jimmy Stewart's trying to kind of figure it out and try, basically as a defense lawyer, it's his job to understand like every potential pitfall that they could come into in court. So it's like he's he's trying to kind of see like what the situation is from that angle. And actually it's not even clear if sexual intercourse occurred because the rape kit did not show any evidence of sperm yes but the lady's uh story laura laura Mannion's story is that she was uh she was trying to fend off this guy and he punched her and she she kind of was half conscious when he when he was raping her so in in her story in her approximation it's possible that he could have used a condom or, or or some such thing while doing this or it's possible that it was just, he was just giving her a ride home and Mannion got jealous. And nothing happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's possible that the punch on her face was from her husband. Right. Yeah. Because there is at times a certain coldness between this couple. There is. And, and you find out stuff later on. But that kind of seals the deal for me in terms of what I think happened. But it is very ambiguous at first. It's not a slam dunk either way. Right. I thought that the, I thought that Laura Mannion, despite the fact that I think a lot of the men in the movie are very off put or they find her sexuality very off putting in the sense of like, Oh man, she's too sexy. She's too powerful. I found her description of what happened relatively the way she talked about it, relatively credible. And that was one thing. She talks about her, her rape and, and, and this situation, this terrible situation that happened to her in such a matter-of-fact way. I was like, is that, I was just like, is that, is that like kind of like 
problematic or is that kind of empowering like that some people could just react like that is it a coping mechanism self maybe yeah self-care yeah may maybe a coping mechanism for what happened um she's not you know i don't know it was just interesting do you believe she was raped <sighs> yes in 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 terms of everything that happened in the movie at first i was like i don't know in terms of everything that happened in the movie yes is this a good time to talk about the slut shaming stuff or you want to do that a little bit yeah what what, what did you make of it I was, I was curious as the, as the man. There was a lot of slut shaming stuff, which was a fair representation of the attitudes of this time and place. I think watching it now or even watching it even like 20 years ago, it's very problematic. Well, I was, yeah, I was just interested. Like to me, it's kind of funny, not funny, terrible, but interesting. But because, um, like Jimmy Stewart at first is kind of like kind of takes this slut shaming approach like you need to act demure you need to act like a demure little housewife during the trial because otherwise we're screwed basically and then the prosecution is bringing it out as well during their questioning of her so it's just interesting like it, she's getting it from all sides and the whole town and, and and basically everybody is very concerned about her sexuality basically you know her her husband's coworkers in the you know in the platoon he's in, uh, or you know the military unit that he's in, um, you know people she hung out with like everybody is very much like kind of obsessed with the way she acts. It seems like in a certain way. So I just thought that was interesting, and I don't think that's necessary. I don't know if the movie's problematic because I think it that's probably a pretty accurate portrayal. And I don't think as viewers, we're supposed to think like, oh, she's bad. But we're seeing like the impact that this young woman's sexuality has that she's being very open with in this town. And it's kind of like, nobody knows how to handle it, basically. Nobody knows how to deal with it. They're very threatened by her. They're very threatened by her sexuality and her power. And I don't think they're necessarily saying she's bad, but I think... They're saying this is a bad couple because a, a lot of men, either certainly now and even back in 1952 or 1959, would have been okay with having a wife, having that kind of power and behaving in that way. This is a man who his previous wife had cheated on him. Yeah. So he had problems with jealousy and deep fears about that. And so it's not a good idea for a man prone to violence with jealousy issues to have a wife who's out there behaving this way. She needed a different kind of man. He needed a different kind of woman. Yeah, they're clearly not well matched. And yeah, which is very clear from the outset, as you said, when, when she visits him in jail, he's very cold towards her. So if you were the prosecutor... And a man killed the person who raped his wife. Do you, what do you do? Do you charge him with murder? Do you charge him with some kind of uh, reduced manslaughter type of charge? Well, I think there's a, the, there's a, there's a number of questions that I would have to determine before I decided what to do. Um, are we sure that that is what happened? Is this, could this be some sort of domestic situation where one of the parties was cheating on the other and someone else got caught up in it and was not actually a rapist. If I'm fairly certain that a rape likely did occur, 
I mean, I would investigate it. I guess I would have the police investigate it like both a murder, but also a rape. I wouldn't just investigate the murder. I would do both and gather evidence and see what happens. And, um, you know, get everybody psychiatrically, <laughs> you know, tested. And if I felt like there was a pretty good possibility, you know, if I felt like it was it was likely that, that there was a rape and that this was an act of, you know, revenge for that, I think I would potentially give like a reduced sentence instead of murder one. Because I think the temporary insanity defense is, you know, I don't know. That's a pretty uh, that's a pretty tough situation. <laughs> what do you think? I would charge first degree murder and be willing to take a plea. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, well, pl- plea it down basically. I wouldn't let the person walk because then everybody would be murdering people and be claiming, you know, oh, he robbed my house or you know, like it, it, it wouldn't want to set like a bad precedent, but I would also be willing to say that maybe there's some extenuating circumstances here that this person would have never killed anybody had this not happened, you know? Um, and, and, you know, got a rapist off the streets. <laughs> but certainly anybody who loves someone else can understand yes. what it would be like. Do you think most prosecutors would throw the book at someone like this? At, the, at Lieutenant Mannion in this case? I think you charge first degree murder. Because... Yeah, you want to start from a position of strength. Yeah. But I guess my thing is, it didn't seem like the prosecutor in this case really investigated the rape at all. In fact, the prosecutor didn't even want the rape to be brought up in front of the jury. And see, I think that's a bad approach. I don't I don't think that's really... That seems like you want to win. You're not necessarily concerned with the issue of justice. I think it's fair to investigate both as both are crimes... And then figure out what you what your approach is. If there's no evidence that anything happened and it seems like it was a lie, then throw the book at him. But if it's if it's um if it's a situation where maybe uh you know, maybe you have some evidence that something did happen, then because if they had investigated it like a rape, I will say, they probably would have, you know, a different conclusion may have been come to earlier on. Anyways, but we get to see, uh, as he interviews Mannion, we get to see Jimmy Stewart sort of interacting with all the jail people. Like, he's the former boss, which is kind of fun. And he knows all the, the, the you know, the people who work in the county jail. And then he's going in to see his replacement. It's kind of awkward. The replacement has him sit on this big, elect, you know, big uh, vibrating chair. And it's kind of like, you're kind of seeing, like, this is a man sort of who's been reduced. He's kind of out of his element as the defense attorney. So he's... He's obviously a very intelligent, smart lawyer, but he's he's not he's not like Mr. Fancy coming into town ready to kick ass necessarily. And I love his relationship with the older guy because like at one point he even <laughs> they're eating lunch talking about the case and he you know, he's there's there's only one thing more devious than a Philadelphia lawyer and that's an Irish lawyer. <laughs> I like that. They're fun. I have no idea what the nature of their relationship is in terms of like how they met or like what exactly happened, but it's a fun, it's a fun character. <laughs> Can't trust Irish lawyers, Kevin. You love Irish talk. You're Irish, so yeah, you and go. you're a lawyer, so that's me. I'm pretty devious, therefore not yeah, trustworthy. I'm completely untrustworthy. <laughs> I'm a cad. That's what I want your like face on one of those like injury attorney billboards. <laughs> Somewhere like, I'm completely untrustworthy. 
So at some point, Mrs. Mannion yeah even put, puts her flirtation on Jimmy Stewart at one point. I was I was I was like, uh oh. She she even tells him, you know, I'm used to men being interested in me. Like I know that you're interested in me. She's kind of flirting with him. I mean, I I say that to all men I meet. So I guess. Anya, <laughs> you're such a tart. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm always posing on couches luxuriously. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's funny because it's the, it's true because it's the opposite of truth. Um, well, that's how we got together. Yeah, I just I'm used to men being attracted to me. Yeah, that that sounds like me. Um, I said, "Golly, oh gee," and she even kind of is like, "You're a funny lawyer" because she ha- he has all these uh, strange musical tastes, which also applies to Kevin. You know. I'd be I'd be in your office blasting your Camelot records, and you'd be uh, <laughs> you're quite a funny lawyer, aren't you? <laughs> Frank Sinatra tunes. <laughs> well, what what's it what's, like? What would another weird? Oh, maybe your psychedelic country phase. <laughs> Talking about Sturgill Simpson. Yeah, I have a very wide range in music. Oh, phase. you're just so interesting. <laughs> you're just a funny lawyer, Kevin. Um, so he gets her a beer, and he gets a beer for her dog. She has a little dog she always carries the around. The dog is the star of the fucking show. I love this dog. I love this dog. What about the dog strikes the cane It's fancy? so funny, and it's so talented. The dog comes into play later. But the dog can do things like carry shit around, and we could never get our dog to do shit like that. No, our dog is just a waste of space. What? <laughs> don't be Don't be rude. But uh, so she kind of describes uh, Mannion once she's in his office, describes everything that happened to her. And um, yeah, I guess then we can kind of how is Stuart going to play this? Because it's not clear at this point whether he's going to take the case. Um, it, she describes a scene where she went out alone to play pinball at Barney Quill's bar and that he was playing with her and they were kind of friendly, but not super close after she wanted to go home. He offered to drive her because he said that there were bears in the area because this is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, she got in his car because she thought they were friends. And then instead of driving her back to the trailer park, he drove her out into the woods and raped her. He said, he said I'm going to rape you. He hit her. He tore her panties off. And then he did rape her. The doctor said she had not been raped. But Mrs. Mannion says a woman doesn't mistake these things. So I want to get those details in. Yeah. The doctor seemingly told the press in the case that she had not been raped. But that'll that'll uh, come into play later. Yeah. So we just need to get those details. Uh, so then she leaves. And then we have another conversation between Stuart and Mr. McCarthy. Yeah. The Irish guy. The Irish lawyer who he doesn't trust but loves. And, uh, and, and Stuart, you know, actually now wants McCarthy... Who's who plays McCarthy? McCarthy is played by Arthur O'Connell. So Stewart tells O'Connell that he wants him on the case with him. He wants him to help him win this case, but he needs him to lay off the booze because this guy's a total alcoholic. And as a recovering alcoholic myself, I thought this scene was very poignant because um, O'Connell really, really wants to get back his law career and be a lawyer again. And do all that but it's so so fucking hard to quit 
and he's not sure he can do it. And he's kind of like tearing up a little bit because you can tell he really wants to work with Stuart, but he is not sure he can. And um, so that scene got to you. That scene got to me. <laughs> it was really, uh, I felt that. I felt that. But ultimately, he kind of says, you know, I can do this. I'm going to do this. I want, he says, I might manage to be a real lawyer again for a while anyway. I just thought that was very poignant because it's really hard to do anything when you're abusing alcohol. And I know that firsthand, but he, he, um, he's not saying he's going to quit forever, but he is saying that he's going to quit for a while, you know, while the trial is going on to help Stuart. Yes. So that was beautiful. You stopped and McCarthy stopped. Hell yeah. I was just like, oh, baby, go to AA or something. <laughs> Somebody help this poor Irish lawyer. He, needs... <laughs> he seemed to do it on his own. Also, I like this character because his name is Parnell McCarthy. Uh, Parnell uh, was a famed Irish politician who advocated for Ireland getting more power away from Great Britain. So he's named after a badass. He's a nice Irish boy. I like this character. This might have been my favorite character. I really... I. His struggle resonated with me as somebody who has dealt with the same thing. And it's not giving too much away to say that he does indeed go off uh, alcohol. He goes off alcohol. Proud of him. Proud of my boy. <laughs> and he does good work. In this he does movie. good work. He's great. He's an icon. I just think it's weird because like so often alcoholics are portrayed in media as kind of like funny or just inherently deeply tragic. And this felt like somewhere in the middle. He's kind of funny and silly at points, not necessarily just because of his drinking, just because of his personality. And then he's kind of tragic, but he's not hes not down in the gutter, falling around. Like, he made a mess of his life, and he's trying to get it back. So I, that was cool. That was realistic. And by the end of the picture, you feel he has gotten it back, or he's on his way to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's able to turn things around one day at a time. So that's cool. So after Mr. or rather Lieutenant Mannion cops to the insanity defense, Stewart agrees to take his case. Oh, one thing we should mention is that uh, I think we didn't mention before is that Mrs. Mannion's account of the rape. Um, Barney Quill tore off her panties. Uh, Jimmy Stewart focuses on that and asks about where those are. Those have not been found. Those were not found when police searched the area. And I believe they were not found in Quill's car. Right. So those are missing. So that's why I emphasized we needed that detail. Oh, there. sorry. I thought I, thought I, I didn't. I, mean, I mentioned that he tore off the panties. Yes. Those are, those are AWOL. The panties are AWOL. That will be, that will be important later. But even, even now, Jimmy Stewart is asking a lot of questions about that. Then he goes to the bar that was owned by the victim, Barney Quill and starts asking questions there because he's trying to figure out what happened. Yes. This is kind of wild because we have a another podcast called The Murder Sheet where we're looking into restaurant and, you know, pub and stuff, murders, uh, murders that occur in such places. So um, basically what ha- happened here could have been something that we covered on our show because it's a guy walks into a bar and shoots the bar owner dead. Yeah, it's kind of a wild uh, coincidence. Yeah. Right? So he's talking, Stuart goes in and he talks to the current barkeep who worked for Barney Quill. He The, the barkeep isn't really looking to talk to him because he's really a witness for the prosecution. But he does say that um, one a, a, a young woman named Mary stands to inherit the bar from Quill. 
And Mary is described uh, later as being Quill's private property. So there's some sort of uh, connection between Quill and Mary. And let, let me just say here that one of the, the uh, charms of this movie for me is that a lot of these more minor characters like Mary are played by uh, character actors or actresses that I know from other roles. So Mary Mary Quill's private property is played by Catherine Grant, who was the second wife of Bing Crosby. I know you always talk about what a great fan you are of the Der Bingle. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're a funny lawyer, Kevin. Uh, and there's also later on, there's, there's a witness played by Joseph Kearns, who is perhaps best known as the cranky Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace and Floyd the Barber from the Andy Griffith show is also one of the witnesses in the case. So it, that's kind of fun for me. But I digress. God, this is like, this is like your catnip. <laughs> a movie about lawyers with a bunch of random character actors stuffed in there. This movie was made for you, I feel. <laughs> so at some point, uh, O'Connell, Stewart, and also Stewart's sassy secretary, whose name escapes me, uh, who's who's a fun character too. They all get together in the like hotel pub area that Barney Quill owned, and Mary is actually the the person, the hostess, to seat them. So they're all talking about her, and she's like getting them menus and stuff. And then then they sit her down and kind of say, "Hey, what, what do you think about this Barney Quill guy being a rapist?" <laughs> and she kind of just gets up and angrily leaves. She's yeah. not having this. If you want to talk briefly about his secretary. Speaking of character actors, she, of course, is played by Eve Arden, who is best known as Armis Brooks. You could just make up a bunch of, like, <laughs> names and titles, and, like, I wouldn't bat a fucking eye. She, you could have been like, oh, that's uh, Tess Meringue from the Geneva years. Like, like <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh. It, was, it was a popular sitcom where she played uh, a school teacher. Mm-hmm. Who was kind of sassy? Oh, sassy broad. Yeah, and she's fun. She's like she. Her big thing in this is that she's doing all this work. She's basically like helping them investigate this case, and they're not paying her because they don't have any money. The law firm has no money, so she keeps on saying, "I can't even pay myself. This is ridiculous." So she's having to deal with some some of the financial instability that Mr. Jimmy Stewart is going through. Uh, and now there's also a quick scene that I want to mention just because it also lays the groundwork for something that happens later. Uh, Jimmy Stewart goes to visit Mannion in uh, jail, and Mannion is saying, you know, I'm upset because my wife hasn't visited me. Stewart leaves, and then one of Mannion's fellow prisoners suggests that perhaps there is a possibility that Mrs. Mannion might be a bit of a tart, mm. at which point Mannion attacks this this fellow prisoner. Yes. So just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. They Then Jimmy Stewart, to blow off some steam, goes and hangs out at like the local roadhouse where there's a big dance going on. Everybody's having a delightful time. And actually, jazz legend Duke Ellington is there playing the piano with Jimmy Stewart because Jimmy Stewart likes to play the piano too. So they're friends and they're just hanging out playing the piano together. There's a big band going on. It's a lot of fun. This is the scene you alluded to earlier where he tells her you need to be more demure. So, yes, the uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, abandons Duke Mr. Ellington. Very sad. 
and goes and grabs Laura Mannion, who is actually there dancing with another fella. And he kind of takes her out into the parking lot and says, you know, I'm going to take you home. You need to wear horned rim glasses, cover up, you know, he basically slut shames her um, and, and says basically like if, if people see you off doing this, like you need to, you need to basically like keep, keep everything in line until the trial because it's going to, I mean, is that, I mean, it's obviously slut shaming and gross, but I guess is my question for you, Kevin, like, is that, I guess it makes sense from a defense strategy to not give the prosecution any ammo. But also there's obviously inherent sexism there right. because obviously it's perfectly fine for Jimmy Stewart to be in this place having a, a, a good time. No one thinks less of him for doing this. But the woman who's there, mm. people think less of her. Well, I'm not. Obviously, it's gross. Th this movie has a lot of gross sexism in it. And I'm not really sure what's the movie saying things and what's maybe just the character. Like, like I feel like if the movie, if the like, I'm not really sure if the movie's thesis is sexy women are bad. I'm not even sure about that. That's the thesis of a lot of these fellas in the movie. I think if the characters think that, that's one thing. But if, if the movie's point is that the woman is bad, then that's more inherently insidiously sexist to me so what did you think about how this scene ends he takes her to her trailer and she invites him inside i mean i was kind of like don't go in there man <laughs> seems like a bad idea when he didn't he didn't go in no he doesn't go in um i thought it was gonna be one of those movies where like he wrecks his life like almost like a noir like a double indemnity. Yeah. Like He's Fred McMurray. Yeah, kind of. I, I was thinking that at some points. But that's not this movie. No, this is a courtroom drama. Um, yeah, I just I felt bad for her character. Like you kinda like they don't they don't just like they kinda give some sense that like her family was always moving around, like she gets very lonely. She doesn't I don't think she has ever felt understood by a man in her life. And it seems like She's kind of going from husband to husband, but it's like she probably should just take some time for herself. But I think in the 1950s, it was kind of hard for a woman to just, oh, I'll just go do my own career, da, da, da. You know, so it's like she she's kind of trapped in, in her circumstances to a certain degree. So I, I found her sympathetic. I felt sorry for her. her some of her behavior was off-putting in the movie, but you could kind of understand it. Like you say, it's it's hard to evaluate because on one hand, you want to look at what it is saying about the specific characters in this time and place. But then on the other hand, you, you're wondering, is it trying to say something about all women? Right. And all women's sexuality. All sexy women. Yes. You know? I guess. <sighs> we talked a little bit about his secretary. Mm -hmm. His secretary is intelligent uh useful contributing part of society whatever sexuality she has takes place outside of the confines of the movie so is the movie positing that this is how a woman needs to be and and mary the the uh the girl who stands to inherit the bar is much more demure she's much more straightforward she's not she's not she doesn't seem to use her sexuality she's very pretty and like people comment on that but she's not uh actively using it using what she's got basically so is this just something about these specific characters or is the movie making a grand pronouncement about 
women who are open about their sexuality. See, I think maybe a little bit of both. It There's so many of these movies that really you feel like are making a grand pronouncement of all women who mm -hmm. use their sexuality. So I, I think, I don't think it falls into that category of like, okay, we're going to stand on the hill. Don't use your sexuality or you get people killed. I don't think it's really in that level. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. But I do think there's an element of that. Just like there's an element of that in a lot of movies. So I, I I got a whiff of that, but like not a full blast. That was my take on it. I'd have to watch it again, I feel like, in a few years to really look at that element more. There seemed, it didn't seem, for whatever reason, it didn't seem so full on sexist as, as other things. And it, I think... I think it just portrayed Mrs. Mrs. Mannion a little bit more with a little bit more humanity than you would think it would. Like she doesn't seem, she doesn't really seem like a bad sort. Like when, when Jimmy Stewart says, Hey, you could hurt your husband's chances. She kind of is immediately like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll I don't want to hurt him. Yeah. I'll be a team player. I'll get in line. Like she's not malicious. She's not. I think she's clearly loves her husband. Yeah. And you feel sorry for her. So I, I don't really feel like, I feel like if they wanted to be really like, oh, sexy women bad, they could have just made her almost like an antagonist. Mm -hmm. And she's just not. So I, I, th I think I think it's I think it's more complicated than, and, and in some ways it kind of, the movie almost treats her a bit of an innocent because like she's, she's like going out and playing pinball. Like she's not she's not doing like sexy sexy things, you know what I mean? She's just seems like she just wants she's bored and wants to have fun, mm. you know. And like a lot of men are kind of oogling her and like kind of like she can't be herself because everybody's so creepy and sexist. Basically, like you feel bad for her. Like it's almost childish. She like wears her glasses and goes out and play pit, pit, plays pinball in the bar mm. because that's fun. Like that's not um that's it's almost kind of like childish and innocent in a way and walks around carrying a dog all the time yeah like she's like a she's like a kid i mean she's very she's obviously very young in the film but she's she's like a kid and it's like i i feel like we're almost supposed to be like the movie's almost making a point of like all everybody sees is how sexy she is but like like almost that's everybody else's problem and like they treat her accordingly, whether by flirting with her or by trying to take advantage of her or trying to attack her. But like she's just kind of being herself. And it's like all these guys using her looks as an as an excuse to like treat her poorly. And that's not just the bad guy or that, you know, that's not just, you know, that, that could that could even be Jimmy Stewart or uh, the, the prosecutors in this case who are not, not, not necessarily bad or evil men. But like it's like. I feel like the point of the movie is more like men can't handle a woman's open sexuality as opposed to like women shouldn't be openly sexual. Cause I don't feel like we're supposed to dislike Laura. Do you think women today are penalized if they are openly open about their sexuality? Not to the same degree as 1959, but yes. I mean, I think there's an element of that, but it's much quieter. It's obviously much, yeah, it's obviously much quieter. And, you know, it depends on what culture or what area you're in or whatever. But, you know, there's men are very threatened by a woman who is comfortable with herself and, like, openly, openly sexual. I think that's very alarming uh, 
and powerful. Is that something you've had to deal with personally? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Are there any anecdotes you'd like to share? I don't. I'm not really a femme fatale type, Kevin. Aren't you? No. Do you think you're, I am? You're sitting over there in this skin tight dress. <laughs> With my big c- cigar, cigar holder, cigar cigarette holder. holder. <laughs> You've got a cocktail over there. Several dead bodies on the floor from <laughs> from the shootout that happened. Your big stiletto heels. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I think every girl has to deal with a lot of damage. You know. I, I think a lot of a lot of stuff is done. You know, even by well-meaning people around like body image issues that kind of fuck a lot of girls up, and it's like you're. You're, you're taught from an early age to hate yourself um, rather than embrace how you look and just own it and, like, be confident. And I think there's an element of that because, like, either people before you didn't learn to love themselves or, like, they, you know, society sort of wants you to hate yourself. And I think I fell into that trap. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of women do. I mean, I'm sure a lot of men do too, but I think with women it's it's pretty insidious of like you're too fat or you're too skinny or you need boobs or you don't you know, those boobs are too big or whatever. You know? Um and like that all seems to like dampen your ability to be really confident and sexual in an open and kind of kick ass way. And I think I think society and you know at all levels, family level, uh, friend level, you know, school level, whatever, does a lot to tell teenage girls that they don't look right and aren't acting right. Therefore, you know, should kind of just go die in a hole, basically. <laughs> or at least that's how it feels when you're a teenage girl. What do you think? Going on my feminist rants. No, I, I find I, I find it interesting, and in the past, you've told me some uh, anecdotes. You know, we're, we're joking. Obviously, you don't walk around in skin-tight dresses and stuff, and you always dress in a very professional and somewhat demure manner, but you also don't hide. When you go out into an office situation or something, you dress demurely and professionally, but there is some femininity to that. And I know there have been times on the street or on the subway where you've been made the victim of uh, men harassing you to one extent or the other. And I didn't know if this that, that falls on the same spectrum as what Miss, Ms. Mannion is dealing with or? Uh... Um, I, I, well, Miss Mannion, she, she's kind of being preyed upon by people within her town, you know, people who she thought were her friends. And I think that's can be very common for women to deal with. I, I remember this is a little bit of a, of a personal anecdote. I just drove by and I saw you walking on the street and I happened to have my Mr. Microphone. And I said, hey, good looking. I'll be back to pick you up later. And that's how we met. <laughs> the fuck is a Mr. Microphone? <laughs> oh, my God. I imagine that, but, like, you driving, like, some kind of ridiculous, ridiculous, like, float with your own, like, your own image on it or something. Like, the Kevin van, like... <laughs> Mr. Microphone is something that used to be popular where it was a microphone that would allow your voice to be played over the radio. Back in the 1800s? And there was advertisements where a guy would be in a car and he'd drive past a lady and say, hey, good looking, I'll be back to pick you up later. And the women would swoon. More like call the police. <laughs> so I was humorously suggesting that that's how we met. You're just a street harasser, Kevin. Yeah. 
with medieval technology. <laughs> Let's get to the trial. <laughs> uh, the trial has some stunt casting. Do you want to talk about that? So in the in the story, the um, the regular judge for the Upper Peninsula in this area is uh, having surgery. He's medically, you know, out of it basically, and they instead have a, a a Michigan judge from downstate to come in, which is actually what happened in this in the case that this story is based on. And this judge is played by one Joseph N. Welch. Who's that? He is the lawyer who kicked Joseph McCarthy's ass, basically, verbally. I forget what the exact quote, but it was basically the, like, have you no decency? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that, I believe, and I'm not an expert on McCarthyism or that period of American history, but I believe that that was largely at least seen as the turning point that um, sort of took the juice out of the Republicans' McCarthyist efforts to paint everyone they didn't like as a communist, basically. And that when he, when Welch uttered that line, let me get the actual line, because I know I know it's not have you no decency, sir. I know it's like something a little more complicated than that. Welch asked McCarthy, at long last, have you left no sense of decency? Oof, brutal. And uh, it sort of was the turning point that sort of uh, reduced McCarthy's grasp. And uh, he, I guess McCarthy eventually fell out of politics and like got addicted to pills and alcohol and died. So it was a happy ending. Yeah, it was. What a fucking asshole. Uh, <laughs> um, but he, he, uh, he is the judge in this, so he's a real-life lawyer. He's not an actor. And he, he, he establishes himself as a kind of quirky guy. He's playing a Judge Weaver. He says, one judge is quite like another. And everyone's very bemused by him. Love this guy. He, uh, but he kind of calls them out on the carpet from day one because he's kind of like, why did, you let the, why did you let a defendant in a murder case go down to Detroit to get psychiatrically evaluated? Because they had to because the Army basically wouldn't do it any other day. But he's he's already establishing himself. He's not going to take any guff from the prosecution or the defense. He's not really predisposed to either one. He is a little bit dismissive of the Upper Peninsula, though, because he's like, is this how you people do things up here? Jesus Christ, you know? <laughs> I think my sense, my limited sense of Michigan is that the Upper Peninsula is kind of like the rural area. It's kind of like the, kind of the, like maybe they're kind of, oh, maybe the people downstate think of them as a little backwater. I don't, I, that's, I'm not. I'm not espousing that opinion. I'm just saying that's my limited understanding. That's what you were saying last night. No, it's When we not. were watching this movie, you went off on quite a rant. I've never... I believe the word hillbillies was used. <laughs> now, Kevin Greenlee. I've only, only called people from Indiana hillbillies. <laughs> and I also... Um, I've, I've never been to Michigan, so I can't... Then why, why were you calling them white trash sons of bitches? Oh, you shut up. You're such... You're so full of shit. I was shocked. I once said nice things about Michigan because I was like, I'd like to visit there. And you're like, nah, it's just, nah, it's just any, like anywhere in the Midwest. I don't recall this exchange at all. Yeah, you were like, you were like shitting on Michigan. I remember getting teary-eyed. Your Indiana pride. I got teary-eyed talking about how beautiful it is at uh, Benton Harbor. Oh, please. How lovely it is to see the lighthouses on Lake Michigan. Such bullshit. How beautiful it is to stroll around the campus at uh, University of Michigan. The great Thomas uh, Edison Museum. You once said that Indiana was the best state in the Midwest. 
Michigan is a close number two. It's a majestic place. You know what? Place. That's disgraceful. That that's di- <laughs> Indiana. Really, really, really. <laughs> okay, what do you think is the number one state? Not Indiana. <laughs> what would you say? Are you are you a Michigan? I would say probably Michigan. Why? I don't know. It's all, it's all, I like lakes. I like I like get up there in the lakes. I like that. It's near Canada. You can get the hell out of the United States if you want. I like that. All that all <laughs> speaks to its credit. I've never been there, but I dig that. Oh, so one sad thing is that the judge, uh, 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 Mr. Welch, actually died 15 months after the, this movie was released. So he, uh, you know, this was kind of his last hurrah in a way. Uh, but he's he's a delightful addition. You know, he he doesn't seem like an actor. He just seems like a judge. You know what I mean? He he doesn't. He's just kind of like a quirky guy. Uh, I thought his line about how one judge is like any other. I I think that plays to an illusion people like to have about the legal system that it's just the people in the legal systems are just like cogs in a machine, and it doesn't matter what who those cogs are, you would still end up with the same result. And I think that's obviously not the case and i think this movie even shows that's not the case because i can imagine a different attorney making different decisions than jimmy stewart did or a different attorney making different decisions than the prosecutors did yeah so i just want to call out that line is uh, bullshit <laughs> well, why don't we start getting into uh the uh, trial a little bit and uh yeah oh but one thing before we get started um mccarthy or rather o'connell and stewart are you know digging around the library and the judge is looking in on them like pr- a proud dad being like oh they're studying and uh, they find an 1886 precedent that uh, showed that the Michigan Supreme Court upheld a a uh, a con- uh, a acquittal based on, or they they basically acknowledged that it was possible for somebody to commit murder while having a temporary insanity bout, basically. So there, that's good for them. Um, the judge. Oh, and, and it's nice to see in that scene McCarthy's drinking a lot of soda pop. My, that's my, <laughs> I, I, I've drank a lot of seltzer since I quit alcohol. So yes, I have. was like, I relate to that. And I was worried for a second because it has like a glass bottle. I'm like, oh, what are you doing, O'Connell? But don't worry, it's just soda pop. So the judge uh, is like going through the jurors, making sure everything's okay. One fun fact is that when he asked if the jurors were related to anyone involved in the trial, one of them lied because one of them was actually a cameo by his wife. Welch wouldn't be in the film unless his wife could have a little cameo. So I thought that was nice. So she's, <laughs> she's one of the jurors. And uh, there's also a bit of a twist in terms of the prosecution team. What's what's going on, Kevin? Uh, for some reason, they bring in a fancy lawyer from downstate played by George C. Scott. Yeah. He's, the, uh, he's from the attorney general's office in Lansing. And his reputation precedes him. He's a tough cookie. The tough cookie. Yeah. So... Stewart's not only going up against his the guy who beat him for the prosecutor race, but he's also going up against George C. Scott. George C. Scott. So he's Patton. Patton. Patton's gonna kick his ass. Yeah. Pretty scary. So the judge is already happy. They got done all the jurors pretty quickly, so that's great. It, it, but it also seems like bad news for Stewart because you know this guy Scott is kind of overriding the local prosecutor on certain things, and you know. Is kind of a for, more formidable opponent. So it becomes clear in the trial that Jimmy Stewart is very, very desperate to connect, to bring in the rape to the trial, bring in evidence around the... Because the, the, that's basically yeah. his defense. His defense is that my clients 
wife was raped and it caused a temporary insanity in him that prompted him to go murder the rapist, basically. And so, I mean, but that's one thing people might, people who are maybe lay people who don't know much about the law might think, well, why wouldn't they automatically bring that in? That's part of the story. Can you speak to that, Kevin? A prosecutor just has to prove what happened, the elements of a crime. You know, if X shoots Y, he just needs to show X was there, X had a gun, X pulled the trigger, Y fell down with a bullet wound. It's up to the job of the defense attorney, X's defense attorney, to try to, if there was a reason or a motive behind that, that would uh, affect that and constitute a defense. It's not up to the prosecutor open uh, to offer a possible defense. Is it difficult for a defense attorney to bring stuff in, or is it easy for the prosecutor to be like, we're not talking about the rape. Get out of here. It's a constant struggle. Right. Well, I wanted to ask one thing. This is a dumb question. I don't care. This this courtroom is beautiful. It's like wood paneled. It looks really classy. Why do so many courtrooms look like dog shit nowadays? Tell me. <laughs> Tell me, you coward. <laughs> I... I in recent years, uh, don't most recent buildings generally look not as impressive as older buildings for whatever reason? I know you enjoy going, going to different churches and stuff. Wouldn't you say that on the whole, a church built like 60 or 70 years ago is probably more beautiful than a, a church built last week? Yes. There are exceptions, but yes. I guess I'm just like, what, 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 what happens to all the wood paneling? Like nowadays, it's like gray carpets. Everything just looks like a really shitty like hotel lobby or something. I don't know. It, it makes me mad. Bring back this kind of courtroom. I can tell you're outraged. If I'm going to be tried for murder, I want it to be in a classy place. You're getting all fired up. Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. I'll murder some architects. I'll murder some interior designers who are the impetus behind this. I just, I was thinking that. I'm like, wow. Like you think, oh, I'm gonna get tried for murder, and it's gonna be this like beautiful wood paneled room and look very stately, and then you get in there and it's like beige walls, brown beige carpeting with blue flecks, like tape, like shitty shitty plastic tables. Like fuck that. <laughs> After your fiery anti-Indiana remarks, I'm more worried that people are gonna get tried for murdering you. Oh shit! I'm worried you're gonna step in indiana the town fathers are going to come and say you got to get out of here after what you said hoosiers rising <laughs> oh come on i'm just uh i'm just i i look like just a corn-fed midwestern girl so no one's in my plaid shirt you know just i'll be fine i'm scared for you you think i seem like too much of a sophisticated new yorker to get by after those fiery anti-Indiana comments. Listen, I like to rib Indiana. That's what I do with stuff I love. You know, I wish there were more lakes there. It doesn't, you know, there's 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 something lacking in the state. <laughs> <laughs> you can't even go through. Mike Pence is from there. What am I supposed to say? And yes, I know Donald Trump is from Queens. Donald Trump is from New York. But I'm saying other people are from New York as well. <laughs> okay, other people are from Indiana. What about Cole Porter? Name someone cool from Indiana in the, like the last, like who's relevant today. Do you like David Letterman? No, but that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I like uh, Kurt Vonnegut. So yeah, there's some cool guys. I'm not. 
Didn't what, what's the quote on Indiana? Gosh, it's swell. No, the quote is like, like all the great men leave Indiana or something. A lot of great men, a lot of great men have come out of Indiana. The greater they are, the quicker they came out. <laughs> what a self own. Anyone good here immediately leaves. <laughs> I guess it's Kevin. You're 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 an attorney. You're an officer of the court. Is this a re- Overall, and we don't have to get into the details of what happens next, but just speaking overall, is this a realistic depiction of a trial? I don't think it's necessarily a, de- a realistic depiction of a trial as it would happen now. But this used to be, there used to be something very theatric about trials. And so there's some a lot of angry bantering back and forth between the lawyers and stuff. And that used to be done a lot more than it is today. What changed? I think just different standards, uh, what we expect in terms of behavior. I think people now don't go into a trial expecting it to be a big professional wrestling match between the uh, opposing attorneys. There's certainly some of it back and forth because you want to be seen as advocating for your client. And just as uh, our political culture is often devoted to stupid fights that are more about symbolism and seeming to own the libs or whatever... A lot of what happened in this trial or in any trial is about trying to own the other side to show your bona fides. So Stewart very quickly establishes himself as very rough and tumble. He's going after the prosecutors. He's questioning their commitment to the truth. Like he's he's knife fighting. He's not. And this is interesting because he used to be a prosecutor. I guess my question is back in the back in the time you're speaking about. Would this have been seen as burning bridges or inappropriate, or would this have been sort of par for the course? I think it's pretty par for the course. Could they have all gone out for drinks afterwards and been like, okay, yeah, you got some in on us? Or would this be like, you're never working in this town again, you piece of shit? <laughs> I, think, I think they'd go out for drinks afterwards. We saw earlier him going in and talking to into the DA's office, the prosecutor's office, and there's a certain professional courtesy and stuff people know it's like professional wrestling i do feel like i get the sense from this movie that all of the lawyers would be fine with each other afterwards and there's something i mean there was it was kind of like that felt realistic where like they say some pretty mean stuff and they definitely get heated in the courtroom but you there's points where they're all kind of talking and there's points where like there's kind of even like they're laughing at each other like there's not there doesn't feel like a sourness or like a really like an anger to it and that seems realistic and i I liked, I don't know, I liked that for some reason. I mean, it kind of made it all seem much more jaded, which I think it is. And I thought that was, I thought it was good that they were portraying it like that. They didn't portray it as like Jimmy Stewart as this angel lawyer, Atticus Finch rising up against (laughs) these evil prosecutors who are railroading a good man. It's like everybody's using shitty tactics because we have a shitty system. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. And like, it's about being smart and using the system to your advantage rather than being like good or true or right. Like you don't really get the sense that anybody gives a shit about the truth in this. No. Like Jimmy Stewart is not in this to like, cause he wants to free an innocent man. He's in it to win. And so are the prosecutors. And that seems like a better take on our justice system than like to kill a mockingbird or, you know, what other, what, whatever, like, great lawyer movies there are when it just makes the lawyers be like, we need to stand up for what's right. 
I'm sure there are situations when lawyers did stand up for that what's right, but in this murder trial, that was certainly not it. So I was glad that they didn't try to make Jimmy Stewart too much of a hero here. Uh, the big question is whether or not they can bring in the rape. And uh, Stewart says uh, it's like the defense and everything that happened is like an apple and the rape is like the seed in the middle of the apple. And he says, I beg the court, I beg the court to let me cut into the apple. And eventually uh, the judge allows that. Uh, there's kind of an unusual moment when they start talking about Mrs. Mannion's panties. You want to describe that? They're trying to figure out a way to talk about the panties without making the uh, spectators laugh. So they're trying to think about different words or synonyms. But ultimately, they, that's the that's the only way to describe them. Because underwear could also be like a bra or something. So, And when they mention panties, the, the spectators do in fact laugh. During a rape trial. Jesus. I uh, But I was thinking, why not just call them underwear? But then I was like, okay, yeah, I guess underwear could be anything you're wearing under your clothes. So, yeah. And, and, and I just want to really stress that Jimmy Stewart's out of control through that, this whole thing. It keeps on getting yelled at by the judge for... You know, being in, t- in contempt and, you know, being being crazy. You feel like the judge just wanted to come up to this sleepy Upper Peninsula town and just have a nice trial, but Jimmy Stewart's just totally fucking it up. He's just yelling and screaming and pounding on furniture. And it's, and it's all theatrical. You don't feel like he really... There's no real rage there. There's no real passion. It's all strategic. I thought that was a cool... like. I thought I, I I really like Jimmy Stewart as an actor in general, but I just thought it was cool like he's able to portray like a guy pretending to care and like do like he has to he has to seem like he cares enough to convince the jury, but like not the audience of viewers in a way. They say that for an attorney in a courtroom, anger and passion is an instrument like a knife or a scalpel is an instrument for a surgeon. And so you wield it very carefully and dispassionately. Yeah, a surgeon can't just be like, oh, oops, the doodles, because <laughs> then you're going to kill the person. But if, And yeah. so if you're in court and you genuinely lose control because you're so passionate and angry, <laughs> you're a nut. <laughs> so you, you want someone who can do it dispassionately. That's what happened to you, Kevin. <laughs> and that's why I'm here. I, I've lost the shirt off my back. Just lost it. <laughs> I'm a disgrace. You were Put that on my billboard too. <laughs> you were drummed out of the service. Yeah. <laughs> so one key witness they have is the barkeep, Alphonse. <laughs> after you, my dear Alphonse. No, after you, Gaston. <laughs> so who's Alphonse played by? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought he was one of. I thought he was one of your beloved character Please, actors. Look at you were like you were like, like give me a you were like oh, I wasn't giving you a trivia question. You were like just speaking at length about how much the the parade of character actors on stand meant to you, and then <laughs> and this is like the only important one. Murray Hamilton. <laughs> Who the fuck is that? Beloved character actor Murray Hamilton. It doesn't matter. I was just he trying was, to set was, you up. He was in Jaws, The Hustler, The Graduate. Okay, we don't need to go into his IMDb page. Well, he's, got, he's got a lot of credits here. He was in Brubaker. <sighs> okay, let's move on. Let's Deadly Harvest. Let's move on, baby. The Harness. Hey, look at me. Sergeant Riker. Shut the fuck up. 
So he, he was on Mama's Family. So he was Golden uh, Girls. Shut the fuck up. Belford Donna. Are you done? Mazes and Monsters. Are you done? Murder of the World Series. Kevin. Thirteen Frightened Girls. What the fuck? That's <laughs> Donovan's kid. You're just making up words now. Murder of the World Series. Yeah, you already said that. Oh, sorry. Hysterical. Kevin. Too scared to scream. Kevin. So, Alphonse. Toward the unknown. Shut the fuck. (laughs) Alphonse is um, a witness. He saw the murder. He saw that he saw the lieutenant shoot his boss, Barney Quill. And Stuart goes at him hard, basically saying that he wanted to rape the his client or his client's wife as well. But meanwhile, O'Connell is speeding up towards Canada to investigate someone, and, and and nobody knows where he is. So he's going on a little side mission. We're aware of this, but we don't know exactly what he's doing at this point. But Armis Brooks knows, but she's not sharing that information. Yeah, and Jimmy Stewart even fires her, and she's like, "You don't even pay me. You can't fire me." So. So the little so O'Connell actually crashes his car, not because he's drunk, but just because he's driving around fast. And Jimmy Stewart goes up to visit him and he reveals that he discovered some important leads on Mary. What did he find? Mary, the woman who was considered Barney Quill's property, was actually Barney Quill's daughter. Yes. So they were not lovers, she was just his heir, basically. So Stuart calls on Mary at the uh, Thunder Bay Inn, which she's going to inherit now that Bar- her father, Barney Quill, is dead. Nobody knew that she was his daughter. She was illegitimate, born in Canada. But um, he brought her down here to give her a job and, like, get her the property, basically. Right. And um, he goes to Alphonse, the barkeep, who he trashed and said he was a rapist on stand. Um, but the barkeep gives him a free beer, which is kind of nice. But he doesn't want to talk about the trial. But then Mary relents and comes down to talk to him about what happened so how does that go uh he 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 gets along okay with mary and he eventually persuades mary to come and testify yeah and meanwhile uh mannion and mrs mannion meanwhile mannion and mrs mannion uh testified you want to talk about that at all uh they testify that Mrs. Mannion was hysterical after the rape, and Mr. Man- or Lieutenant Mannion had her swear on a rosary that she was raped. The prosecution makes a big deal of this, basically saying that why would you have someone swear on a rosary if you didn't believe that they were actually raped? But um, the defense just is saying that this was a way for Lieutenant Mannion to figure out what was going on and have his wife calm down. She was, she was, you know, she's born Catholic. She left the church because she divorced her hus- first husband, but it still means something to her. So she's just. So you're a Catholic. How how do you interpret that? Yeah, I could see that. I mean, like, I think you could spin it either way, depending on how you wanted to, you know, like, I think it could have been as simple as Lieutenant Manny giving her the rosary to comfort her and then her swearing on it that she was raped, like not coming from him. Or it could be that she, he's like, swear on this, you know, like as like an oath kind of thing. So it, it seemed like. Catholics, I mean, I think you want to have a rosary with you in a bad situation like this. A lot of even lapsed Catholics would want that. So I think that seemed valid. But it didn't seem like you could necessarily draw a lot of inference on it either way. But Lieutenant Mannion testifies on his own behalf, which is often a really bad idea in a murder trial, having the having the accused testify. 
Yes. So interesting, bold choice by Jimmy Stewart. Let's see if it works out for him. Then Mrs. Mannion comes on the stand and she brings in the dog. You love this scene. Love it. Best murder trial ever. They brought a dog. It's a little cute little guy. And they give the little guy uh, a little... uh, Everyone loves the dog, by the way. The prosecutors are happy to see the dog. The defense are thrilled to bring it out. The audience is going nuts. The jury's (laughs) happy. The judge is happy. The judge is happy because dogs can't talk. So he thinks it's a nice change. They bring out the little pup. Uh, They give him a flashlight to hold in his mouth because that was an important part of Mrs. Mannion's story. And then immediately, being a dog, jumps on the prosecutor's lap. (laughs) I was thinking, like, Lanny. We'd bring Lanny out to, like, save our lives in a murder trial, and and she'd have to do something to demonstrate to the the jury, and she'd just be lying there. She'd be be lying like a slug. She'd just be lazy bones dog. She'd be, like, she'd be like the frog from that Looney Tunes sketch where he sings, hello, my baby, hello, my darling, hello, my ragtime gal. Every time people are not around, she'd be like that. Excuse me, I need to go get a, a tissue to wipe the tear from Lanny's eyes after she's heard you roast her like she this. She doesn't give a shit. She's asleep right now. I don't even know. Where is she? Where is she? Oh, she's asleep. She's over there. Tears my ass. <laughs> Poor Lanny. Would you trust that dog? to testify on your behalf in a murder trial. If that was my strategy, we'd be cooked. Yeah, I think I think she she the prosecutor would give her treats and then she'd be saying that we were confessing to her. Cuz Lanny can talk. <laughs> <laughs> she told me to kill people. <laughs> it's going to turn into the son of Sam trial. Yeah, I know. Son of Lan. Well, we, we just hope and pray to God that when you're brought in to be tried, it's in a nice courtroom. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll really freak out. <laughs> really look bad in front of the jury. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, love this dog. Uh, but, you know, we kind of kind of continue to see some of the, the anger, but also like the fake anger, but also the banter. Like Jimmy Stewart at one point um, says that he'll punt scott out into the middle of lake superior if he doesn't get out of the way so he can't see his wind so he can see his <laughs> so he can see his client like there's lots of moments and like scott's like laughing at this so it's, it really is like professional wrestling where you're not you're not like oh these people really hate each other and they're gonna like be enemies forever it's like they're all doing their profession so that in that way it seems very realistic as a trial movie even even today like Obviously, we don't have the theatrics today. Right. Things are more professional. But you, there's like, this is a job. It's not some grand, like, American, like, oh, we're we're pursuing justice and truth. It's like, you know, we're trying to, we're doing, we're following the justice system and following the law. There's not a lot of, like, you know, pe- I think most, most, um, most, like, law, legal dramas or, like, a lot of courtroom dramas just get it wrong because they mm. act like it's this big, grand thing, and it's not. And it's really not. And you were talking uh, a moment ago about how if we brought Lanny in to testify for us and the prosecutor gave Lanny a treat, Lanny would change her testimony. That's actually a little bit relevant to this movie <laughs> because he brings in a, a jailhouse informant to give possibly false testimony against Mannion. Uh, and 
it's like so that's kind of an ethically dubious yeah. thing to do. I would say today jailhouse informants are seen as a very dubious method for a prosecutor to to rely on because you're basically incentivizing someone potentially to lie on your behalf. Yeah. So did did this was this guy offered something? Apparently not. But it turns out that this jailhouse informant uh, was the person that uh, Manon got into a fight with earlier in the picture. So he uh, might want revenge. Right. And the guy has a long criminal record. Do you want to talk about uh, the prosecutor says that uh, Jimmy Stewart is using some cornball tricks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very sassy with each other. Do you want to talk about when Mary comes and testifies? So he brings in Mary, and Mary produces some last-minute evidence. What is that evidence? It's the torn panties that Mrs. Mannion said were ripped off her during the rape. How did she have these panties? So she had these panties because Barney Quill left them in... Left them in the, the laundry, laundry room or something. And so she assumed that they were just whatever, like a dirty rag. Yeah. So this kind of supports Mrs. Mannion's story. It definitely supports Mrs. Mannion's story. This made me... that This was the evidence I think they, they needed. I mean, why would he have... Her torn panties hidden in his laundry basket. Right. If he hadn't potentially uh, uh, attacked her. You know, this sealed the deal for me that she she was not lying. And, you know, had the prosecutor investigated this thoroughly, they could have found that earlier and and maybe saved saved this whole big murder trial and maybe been willing to plead down to a much lesser charge. So this seemed, this seemed like to me, you know, Mrs. Mannion gave a very detailed description about what her underwear looked like and the state of it would have been in, and then they found it in this guy's possession. Mary, who is Barney Quill's heir, has no reason to lie or to have planted anything because she is, she was defensive of Barney Quill. She said yeah, he's this, a good man. This is her dad. This is her dad. He's a good man. He wasn't like that. He wasn't perfect, but he was not a rapist. So this seems like Jimmy Stewart's side was right. There was a rape. So then the case goes to the jury. well. No, I one the quote the the when when he he responds to the uh, the cornball accusation. What did you think of his uh, his defense there? He was like all Matlock. Oh, I'm just like a humble country lawyer trying to do the best I can against this brilliant <laughs> prosecutor from the big city of Lansing. At one point, he called the prosecutor and the guy from Lansing legal giants. <laughs> So much of it is just like dripping in sarcasm. It's so funny. I love that shit. <laughs> He's like, I have to go up against these two legal giants. Like, oh my God. <laughs> so good. It was very funny. And the prosecutor makes a pretty fatal error in questioning Mary at this point. Oh, yeah, because he, he was acting like that Mary was his lover or something like that. He, Scott says, you know, you have a reason to lie basically because I'm sure you're just jealous. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm sure you saw these underwear, you know, and you thought that, you know, he's cheated on me. So I'm going to besmirch his memory. He's like, I, he wasn't cheating on me. It's my dad. Yeah. I'm what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> and you could just see Scott like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> they didn't get the information. So uh, O'Connell's contribution was pretty critical in terms of, Figuring out the Mary situation. Your guy McConnell. My guy O'Connell. Your guy O'Connell. <laughs> Get your shit together, Kevin. Um, 
usually surprise witnesses and surprise evidence like this don't happen in trials. Right. And the and the uh, bringing in the evidence of the panties last minute seemed like that the chain of custody is gone. Right. So that they would have been able to throw that out. I think. I don't know. I I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the uh, court transcripts to see how this was handled in the original case. Yeah. There is a, a website that has some of the court transcripts from the original case. Nowadays, this wouldn't hold. I don't know the answer to that. You can't just bring in, oh, here's the murder weapon. Like, oh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't there have to be a chain of custody? In theory, yes. Yeah. One thing, what, what, what do you, I guess before we talk about the verdict, what do you make of the temporary insanity defense? It gets overused and abused. Yeah. That's my it is, feeling. It is valid. I think it's a totally valid thing. I I don't like so much. One one thing I kept thinking of when I was watching this is like it's been used in it's been kind of morphed into the gay panic defense and into the trans panic defense of like killing gay or uh, transgender people. You know, because like a straight guy feels so freaked out that, you know he loses his mind temporarily and kills them. So it's like, obviously even if you can say in some cases, this defense is a good thing, but it, it, it's unfortunately kind of taken on this dark side for me. What was the verdict in this case? Well, you see, before we get to the verdict, you see uh, Jimmy Stewart and O'Connell and uh, miss, what was the secretary's name? Uh, I was calling her our miss Brooks. Miss Brooks are uh, chilling around They're uh, and, and and in a nice scene, O'Connell confirms that he is quitting drinking forever, and uh, Stewart asks him therefore to be his his law partner. And he, it's nice he says he doesn't want to look at the world from a glass of whiskey anymore. It's like, oh, O'Connell, you can identify with that. I love him. Yeah, you can identify. So they get the news that the jury has decided. So they run back to the courtroom. They're all freaked out. And the jury declares Mannion not guilty. By reason of insanity. Yes. But there's kind of a sad ending because Mrs. Mannion doesn't even go into the courtroom to watch. She waits in the car. You you, you don't get the sense. Do you feel like she's mad at him or she's scared. scared? I think she's anticipating a beating when her husband, if her husband is freed, I think she's doesn't she even make a comment to that effect? She does because the the jailhouse snitch implied that he, he wanted to beat her up. Although he doesn't seem like a very believable person. I guess my question is, based on what we know about Mannion in this, do you think that that's a reasonable... Like, do you think... Obviously her concerns are reasonable, whatever she's concerned about, but like, what's your sense of that character, Lieutenant Mannion? I think he's a violent man. Yeah. I think it's it's... it's credible that he would beat her what do you think yeah and i think the fact that basically then the lawyers go to his trailer park to get you know a promissory note with you know to get their money that they're owed for this and he's gone and the trailer park owner says that mrs manion was crying when they were leaving mm -hmm. so i'm like that's kind of depressing and ominous but it's, all is not lost for Jimmy Stewart and his friend. They've What's their next assignment? Now they're going to have to uh, go through the estate of uh, Miss Miss Mary, who, of course, inherited Barney Quill stuff. So uh, O'Connell says it's poetic justice. It is indeed. There's more cool music, 
and the picture in. Yeah. What, so what did you think of this film, Kevin? I enjoyed it. It was very realistic. Uh, I really enjoyed the, how much it showed about the tactics and the behind-the-scenes research that goes on in a case like this. I liked it that there was no heroes. It was just basically a game. It was Yeah. Yeah, who can win? I really liked it. I mean, there were no heroes, but it wasn't like everyone was evil or bad. You know, you felt like people doing their job, people doing their job, people trying their best, people being smart. So, you know, you like to see smart. I like to see movies about smart people trying to figure out problems together. Unvarnished take. My unvarnished take. Uh, Anatomy of Murder is a full bodied courtroom drama marked by its great performances and realistic but engaging depiction of the legal process. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening.